Father, we want to thank you for this day. We want to thank you for, Father, for giving us people who are so talented that they can jump in and fill in on a moment's notice. And we thank you, Father, for all you've blessed us with. And we pray that you will help us through this lesson this morning, that we will be able to see Yeshua for who he truly is. He is a Jew and he is the Jewish Messiah. So please open our hearts and minds and give me the words to speak. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen. So this is part two. Last week we looked at the Jewishness of Yeshua and how it's difficult for those of us in modern days to really understand what he was like because we've been so separated from that first century Judaism. And that separation has led to some theological errors in a lot of cases and in some cases even outright anti-Semitism. I shared with you my journey of faith and how I came to discover that the Torah is the foundation of our faith and how that radically changed the way I look and interpret scripture. We also looked at some scriptures that supported the fact that Yeshua is Jewish, that he lived as a Jew, he died as a Jew, and he will return as a Jew and why that is important to each and every one of us as a believer. Understanding the Jewishness of Yeshua will radically change the way you read scripture because the Bible comes alive. You understand it in context and the people become real people and not just some abstract name on a piece of paper. So before I get into the lesson, I want to hit a few publications quickly that I used in preparing this information, and you may want to look into them as well. They're excellent resources. The first is a First Fruits of Zion publication. It's by Jacob Franzak. The name is Yeshua Matters, putting the Jewish rabbi back at the center of Christianity. And as I mentioned last week, the author of this book knew something was missing, and he found that missing element in Messianic Judaism. Just as with me, he realized that the Torah is the foundation, and when you try to interpret the Bible absent the Torah, you get into all kinds of theological errors. It radically transformed the way he looked at Scripture, as it did with me. The second is The Real Kosher Jesus, Revealing the Mysteries of the Hidden Messiah by Dr. Michael L. Brown. And this is actually a rebuttal of a book that a Jewish rabbi wrote that was called The Kosher Jesus. And in this book... Dr. Brown, in a very loving way, points out where the author of the other book missed the mark when it came to Yeshua being the Messiah. And he also refuted the assertion that Paul was the bad guy who created a new religion. So if you haven't read that one, I would highly recommend it. A couple other resources. J.K. McKee's commentary, Romans for the Practical Messianic. And most of you probably know by now I love McKee's materials. I use them a lot in my teachings. So I always recommend his, his works. The next one is a book that's called The Distortion, 2,000 Years of Misrepresenting the Relationship Between Jesus, the Messiah, and the Jewish People. That was written by Drs. John and Patrice Fisher. And the last one I'll mention, I mentioned last week as well, is called The Lion of Judah, How Jesus Completes Biblical Judaism, and Why Judaism and Christianity Separated. And that's by Rabbi Kurt A. Schneider, who you may recognize from television on the program, The Jewish Jesus. In today's class, I want to address the second reason why having an accurate picture of Yeshua is important. It's the salvation of the Jewish people. 
Although most people are unaware of it, the early church actually continued to follow Judaism even after the death and resurrection of Yeshua. And that's important because it means that the original believers, both the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers, did not reject Judaism as most of us have been taught. But they embraced it, they continued to keep the feast, and they followed Torah for several centuries after Yeshua's resurrection. The big cutoff was in the fourth century when Constantine declared Christianity to be the official state religion. And he made the practice of Judaism illegal and forced everyone, whether they knew Yeshua or not, to convert to Christianity and become part of the church. So many hundreds of years ago, no wonder we now have a difficult time interpreting the scripture because we've been so far removed from its roots. You've probably wondered why it's so difficult for the Jewish people to accept Yeshua as the Messiah promised in scripture. And there's a number of reasons, and we'll talk about a few of those throughout the morning. But one major stumbling block that I want to hit head first is too often Gentiles have portrayed him as a blonde-haired, blue-eyed Gentile who taught against Judaism. They teach against, he taught against Torah, and he absolutely loathed the Pharisees. That image, when held up to the biblical requirements of the Messiah, absolutely disqualifies him from that role. But when we step back and we realize that his first coming was specifically for the Jewish people, that can completely transform the way we view him and our perspective on him and what he came to do. Matthew chapter 10 verses 5 and 6, we see Yeshua sending out his disciples and instructing them to avoid going to the Gentiles, but to go only to the lost sheep of Israel, in other words, the Jewish people. Then in Matthew chapter 15 verse 24, one of the few times we see him talking with a Gentile. He told a Gentile woman this. He said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. So two accounts there where he's acknowledged that I'm going to look at this, this morning. Those two. He said, I wasn't sent to you. I was sent to the Jewish people. We forget that his mission during his first coming was to reach the Jewish people and to teach them how to properly interpret and live out the Torah. It was only as he was preparing to depart and return to the Father that he instructed his disciples, who at that point were Jews and some proselytes that had converted to Judaism, to reach out to the nations, in other words, the Gentiles. But we still see a very deliberate and prescribed order in that direction. Yeshua told them to take his message to Jerusalem first, and that would be the Jewish people. Then we see it expanding to cover Judea, and Samaria, Samaritans, remember, were half-breeds. They were half-Jewish, half-Gentile. And then to the nations, to the Gentiles. At that point, that's when the Gentiles became within scope of the gospel. But it was never to be at the expense of the Jewish people, and that's something we tend to forget. He still was very much... He still very much valued the Jewish people and wanted them to believe in him as well. And we have to understand that. Paul even confirms this order. In Romans 1.16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the good news, 
For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who trusts, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, in other words, the non-Jew. And this may be a little small, but I wanted to try to get as much of it up there as I could. Dr. Michael L. Brown, who I mentioned a few moments ago, did a really good explanation about God's order of the salvation plan that I want to go over quickly. The first step we see, and this is all biblical, God calls Israel to be his agent of salvation in the earth. We've been reading about that over the past few months as we go through our weekly readings. The second, the Messiah comes to his own people, the people of Israel, but they reject him on a national level. Not all the people, but on a national level he was rejected. Three, the Messiah dies for our sins and rises from the dead, being followed by a Jewish remnant. Four, this Jewish remnant who believes in Yeshua now share the good news with the nations who become the dominant majority in God's family, which becomes known as the church, during the time between Messiah's first and second comings. Fifth, at the culmination of this age, there will be a vast spiritual harvest of both Gentiles and Jews. Something to look forward to. Six, the Jewish nation will then function as the lead nation in the millennial kingdom, thereby serving as a light to the rest of the world. So much for those who say God's finished with the Jewish people. <laughs> Seven, this will lead into the eternal age when the fullness of God's purposes will be accomplished with Yeshua at the center and with one people, both Jew and Gentile, worshiping him forever. So what we see here is that this plan, the Jewish people are very important to this plan. They're at the very beginning, God calls them, and then at the very end. And scripture reveals Yeshua as the promised Messiah who willingly allowed himself to be sacrificed in order to atone for the sins of the people, both Jew and Gentile, as we see in there, about the Messiah coming. Okay. So in other words, the scripture supports the belief that Yeshua is the promised Messiah. So I want to step back now and look at the word Messiah in reference to Yeshua because it's very telling. It reveals not only the fact that he is the Messiah, but that he is Jewish as well. The word Messiah comes from the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means anointed one. It's a title. It originally referred to the king of Israel because the king was anointed with oil at the beginning of his reign. It's also a term that's used to speak of the Jewish redeemer. The concept of a Messiah who will come to redeem the nation of Israel and its people originates within Judaism. So it's not a new idea. It's not something the Gentiles came up with. It is very, very Jewish. So what exactly are the requirements for the Messiah? Since there are several hundred of them throughout Scripture, obviously we don't have time to go over all of those this morning. So what I want to do is I want to look at a snapshot. I want to look at a passage in Luke chapter 7. And this is where John the Immerser is in prison, and he has sent his disciples to Yeshua to ask Yeshua, are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? This passage is a great snapshot of what that person who would qualify as the Messiah would have to do. 
Now, for those of you who were here a few weeks ago and heard Rabbi Arroyo's prayer, may remember this passage. It's one of those sections that I had to delete when I spoke on this topic back in early June. And what I found really interesting that morning is Rabbi Arroyo said that Adonai had changed his message. He had planned to give one message to us. And then Adonai came and said, no, this is what you are to speak on. And Adonai gave him a prayer, and that prayer was so intense on his heart that he wrote down that prayer. As I was sitting out there listening to him that morning, and he began to pray based on this verse, it just hit me that, yes, this is what God wants me to reveal. Maybe God didn't want me to reveal it a few weeks ago. Maybe he wanted that first, Rabbi Arroyo's message and that prayer first. But anyway, I, I was really convicted and I said, no, this has got to be shared. So we're going to talk about this. Yeshua responded to John's disciples in verse 22 of Luke chapter 7. And I'm going to read that verse real quick. So he answered them by saying, Go, tell Yochanan what you have been seeing and hearing. The blind are seeing again. The lame are walking. People with Zerat are being cleansed. The deaf are hearing. The dead are being raised. The good news is being told to the poor. Most of us are familiar with that passage, but have you ever wondered how it truly relates to the prophecies of the Old Testament about the Messiah? This is what we're going to talk about. The first thing we see in this passage is in verse 18. Oh, excuse me, verse... Wait a minute. Okay, okay. Sorry. Um... It comes, okay, the first thing we see, I'm, I'm sorry, I slipped up, I'm, this wasn't making sense. I hit my mouse and forwarded, advanced it, sorry about that. I know it didn't make sense. The first thing Yeshua tells the, these, these people that have come to him is that the blind are seeing again. So where do we find that? It's a prophecy that's in the book of Isaiah. We see it in two places. We see it in chapter 29, verse 18. And that says, on that day, the deaf will hear the words of a book. And out of the gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. Then in Isaiah 35, 5, it tells us, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. So we also see here the part about the deaf, which is later in this verse. We also see here the next one is the lame are walking. That comes from Isaiah 35, 6. Then the lame man will leap like a deer, and the mute person's tongue will sing. For in the desert springs will burst forth streams of water in the Arava. He then refers to the lepers being cleansed or healed. Guess what? That's something that had never occurred, and which the rabbis had said only the Messiah could do. Very messianic prophecy. Then there's the requirement of raising the dead. And that one's interesting because can anyone point to me in the Bible where that prophecy is, that the Messiah will raise the dead? I'm not, I'm not surprised. I'm glad someone didn't quote a Bible chapter and verse because there is no specific prophecy for that. However, there was a long-standing tradition that the Messiah would indeed raise the dead. So that's a tradition. In fact, before the time of Yeshua, we, have, we see something written in the Dead Sea Scrolls. It says, the heavens and the earth will listen to his Messiah. 
and none therein will stray from the commandments of the holy ones. Seekers of the Lord, strengthen yourselves in his service. All you hopeful in your heart, you will not find the Lord in this, for the Lord will consider the pious and call the righteous by name. Over the poor his spirit will hover and renew the faithful with power, and he will glorify the pious on the throne of the eternal kingdom. He who liberates the captives, restores sight to the blind, straightens the bent, and forever I will cleave to the hopeful and in his mercy, and the fruit will not be delayed for anyone. And the Lord will accomplish glorious things which have never been, for he will heal the wounded and revive the dead and bring good news to the poor. He will lead the uprooted and make the hungry rich. So that's from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yeshua's response to John's disciples also indicates that the Messiah will bring good news to the poor, as we just saw already even in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and proclaim freedom to the captives. And that's from Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And that, as you saw, just connects right back to those Dead Sea Scrolls. The spirit of Adonai Elohim is upon me because Adonai has anointed me to announce good news to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives, and to let out light into those bound in darkness. And we see that's the passage that he read when he was in the synagogue. We see that in the Brit Hadashah when he announced basically to the people that, hey, I am the Messiah. Because he said, today this has been fulfilled in your sight. Yeshua's response to John's disciples is a clear message that he is indeed the promised Messiah. It is important to remember that the prophecies of the Old Testament were recorded by Jews, for Jews, and they refer to a descendant of Judah and King David. So, stands to reason the Messiah must also be Jewish. And that makes sense. Because the Jewish people would not accept a Gentile Messiah. Because the prophecies point to a Torah-observant Jewish Messiah. So when we portray Yeshua as doing away with Torah, we're telling them, no, he cannot be the Messiah. Think about that one. In reality, most people, including many Jewish people, do acknowledge that Yeshua was Jewish. But many of them claim that he is no longer Jewish. Some people even claim there is no such thing as a Jew and a Gentile today that we're all one. And in a spiritual sense we are, but there is still a distinction between Jew and Gentile. Because if you read Paul's verse, it also says there's no longer male or female. Guess what? There's still male and female. He was, Paul was speaking spiritually. He was not speaking physically. There is still a distinction between Jew and Gentile, and we have different roles. And we'll talk about that later. So Yeshua did not give up his Judaism. He did not become a Christian. He did not teach against Judaism. Nothing could be further from the truth. So think about it. If Yeshua taught against Judaism, he also taught against keeping the Torah. And that's something that many people do erroneously believe and teach. But Deuteronomy 13 tells the people not to believe any prophet who abandons the law. Right there, that would disqualify anyone who taught against the law from being the Messiah. 
Deuteronomy chapter 17 verses 8 through 13 states that all Jews must follow the legal rulings of the Jewish leadership. So, could Yeshua have overthrown those rulings and traditions? He didn't. Instead, we talked last week about how he told the people to obey the scribes and the Torah teachers. He told them, do what they say, but don't do what they do. Because, in other words, they were talking the talk, but they were not walking the talk. The apostles, who were taught personally by Yeshua, headed up a congregation in Jerusalem that was down to the last person zealous for the law of Moses, and you can see that in Acts 21.20. And even Paul, who wrote most of the Bible verses that people memorize in defense of the fact saying, oh, he did away with the law. Those verses that they memorize and use for that purpose, if interpreted properly in context, actually tell us just the opposite, that Paul kept the Torah and he continued to uphold it and teach it. So what about Yeshua? Was he a Torah observant or not? We talked about that last week, and given the fact that we got started a little late, I'm going to skip through this, but if you want to go back and look at last week's lesson online, we looked at a passage in Matthew 5. We began in verse 17 and went uh, basically through the rest of the chapter talking about the use of the word fulfill. It does not mean he did away with the commandments, but that he was there to show them how to live them out. And then when you continue reading and you look at the Sermon on the Mount, which begins in verse 21 of that chapter, we see that Yeshua not only upheld the teachings and the commandments, he actually strengthened them. Instead of telling people not to commit adultery, he told them not to commit adultery and also not to lust in their heart, being just one example. And it goes on and on. So read that when you have time if you haven't already. Obedience to Torah went hand in hand with Yeshua's life as a Jew. And he affirmed that in this passage. It was also his affirmation of the law of Moses. Many teachers hold positions that are diametrically opposed to the truth. For example, Yeshua taught that the temple would be destroyed. But the typical Christian teaching is that the reason the temple was destroyed was because it had become old and outdated and that Yeshua had come to bring something new, a new religion that would replace temple worship, the Levitical priesthood, and the laws of the Torah. But that is not true. The truth is that the Tanakh prophecies look forward to a messianic age in which the temple is called the house of God of Jacob and a house of prayer for all nations. And the Jewish people fully expect this to happen. How can we have a house of the God of Jacob if there is no temple there? How can there be a house of prayer for all nations if there is no temple there? Okay? So he did not do away with the temple and the whole concept. That's not why it was destroyed. Yeshua and Jeremiah both prophesied about the destruction of the temple in order to provoke the people to repentance. He was doing the exact same thing Jeremiah did. The destruction of the temple would be the consequence of sin and the people's refusal to repent of those sins. It was not for the purpose of creating a new religion. Many of the Jewish people, including some leaders of the Pharisees even, acknowledged that Yeshua did indeed meet the criteria of the Jewish Messiah. And we see two, cha uh, two examples of that in John chapter 1. 
just one chapter. We got two examples. In that chapter, we see in verse 41, after Andrew encounters Yeshua, we see that the first thing he did was to find his brother, Shimon, and tell him, we've found the Mashiach. Can't be any clearer than that. Then, in verse 49, same chapter, Nathaniel exclaims, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Remember, that word king and that word Messiah both come from the same Hebrew word, Mashiach, which means anointed one. Then later, when Yeshua questioned his disciples as to who they believed he was, in Matthew 16, 16, Peter, another Jewish man, declared this, you are the Mashiach, the son of the living God. These Jewish men were so convinced that Yeshua was the Messiah that they left their vocations, they devoted their lives to following him, and then after his death and resurrection, they devoted their lives to the spread of the gospel, even to the point of sacrificing their own lives. For example, Peter was crucified upside down, and Andrew, his brother, was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Bartholomew, who most Bible scholars believe was the same person as Nathaniel, was drowned in a sack for his faith. These men would not have given up their lives in such horrific ways unless they were absolutely convinced that Yeshua was the Messiah. So let's spend the next few minutes looking at some very important verses in Romans chapter 11 that talk about the consequences of the Jewish people's rejection and acceptance of Yeshua as the Messiah. And we're going to start in verses 11 and 12. Verse 11, in that case I say, isn't it that they have stumbled with the result that they have permanently fallen away? Question mark. Heaven forbid, exclamation point. Quite the contrary. It is by means of their stumbling that the deliverance has come to the Gentiles in order to provoke them to jealousy. And then verse 12, moreover, if their stumbling is bringing riches to the world, that is, if Israel's being placed temporarily in a condition less favored than that of the Gentiles is bringing riches to the world, how much greater riches will Israel in its fullness bring them? J.K. McKee in his commentary, Romans for the Practical Messianic, brings some light to these verses, pointing out that the failure of the Jewish people to accept Yeshua is only temporary. Paul asks in this passage, have the Jewish people permanently fallen away? He then responds that no, heaven forbid. Their falling away was for the purpose of allowing salvation to come to the Gentiles, who would then provoke the Jewish people to jealousy. James R. Edwards, in his New International Biblical Commentary on Romans, puts it this way. Both Jews and Gentiles benefit each other although in quite unexpected ways. Jewish rejection of the Messiah caused the gospel to be spread with great success among the Gentiles, whereas Gentile acceptance of the gospel would arouse jealousy in Israel and ultimately bring Israel to faith. Guess what? We see a similar concept in the Torah. Does that surprise you? Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 21 says they, and this is God speaking, 
aroused my jealousy with a non-god and provoked me with their vanities. I will arouse their jealousy with a non-people and provoke them with a vile nation. Pretty interesting, huh? The Phillips New Testament actually paraphrases the last part of that verse is, with the result that Israel is made to see and feel what they have missed. So anti-Semitism, the Holocaust, forced conversions, they have all worked against God's plan in this regard. But more and more Jewish people are indeed being provoked to jealousy. One example that is near and dear to our hearts in the Messianic movement is David Stern, who most of you may recognize as being the author of the complete Jewish Bible. He was the one who translated that for us. Mr. Stern came to faith in such a way. And in Stern's own words, non-Messianic Jews ought to be able to look at saved Gentiles in the church and see in them such a wonderful change from their former selves, such holy lives, such dignified, godly, peaceful, peace-bringing, honorable, ethical, joyful, and humble people that they become jealous and want for themselves too whatever it is that makes these Gentiles different and special. Many Jews, myself among them, have been one to trust in Yeshua through the jealousy-provoking behavior of Gentile Christians, behavior that overcomes with its love all the pent-up antipathy, distrust, and pain which a Jewish person can feel. Even when these feelings are justifiable, by objective historical reality. Not natural? Yes, the good news is not natural, but supernatural. Its work is done in people and through them by the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, who can remove every shred of anti-Semitism and falseness and replace them with the transparent love that truly, quote, fulfills the whole Torah, end quote. In another passage, Romans 11:12, Paul asks a very direct question of the believers in Rome, who were primarily Gentile. Moreover, if their stumbling is bringing riches to the world, that is, if Israel's being placed temporarily in a condition less favored than that of the Gentiles is bringing riches to the latter, how much greater riches will Israel in its fullness bring them? In other words, if the corporate rejection by the Jewish people of the Jewish Messiah results in the world at large coming to a saving knowledge of him, how much more will their fullness bring? In other words, the Jewish people's acceptance of their Messiah. Okay? We're told in Scripture that there will be an end-time revival and that Israel, the Jewish people, will be saved. That end-time revival will usher in the millennial kingdom, a time of peace and reign by the Messiah. So it's certainly something, it's a blessing, and we should all be looking forward to it. That is what it will bring. And then we continue in verses 13 through 15 of chapter 11. Paul declares this. However, to those of you who are Gentiles, I say this. Since I myself am an emissary sent to the Gentiles, I make known the importance of my work in the hope that somehow I may provoke some of my own people to jealousy and save some of them. For if their casting Yeshua aside means reconciliation for the world, what will their accepting him mean? It will mean life from the dead. When Yeshua appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, he set Paul apart as a missionary to the nations, as Paul reminds his readers in this passage. But 
Paul reminded the Gentiles that they should not be patronizing towards the Jewish people, thinking that the Jewish people are an apostate nation and they no longer have a place in God's plan. But they should instead, realizing that they, the Gentiles, should live their lives in such a way that the Jewish people are drawn to Yeshua. Big responsibility. Then in verse 15, we see the phrase, life from the dead. I don't want anyone to think that that phrase means that we don't need to worry about the Jewish people because they'll all be saved in the end. It's not what he's getting at. We should be praying for them, and we should be trying to bring them to faith, help them see that Yeshua is indeed the Messiah. God wants all people to come to him, so the door is open to whosoever will at any point in history. Today is the day of salvation for all who will call upon his name. We've been commanded to take his gospel out to all those who do not yet know him, and that includes the Jewish people as well. Sadly, we see the opposite happening in our modern society, and we see the rise of anti-Semitism again. For example, a few weeks ago, I came across two separate stories about Christian leaders who were attacking Israel and the beliefs of the Jewish people. For the sake of time, I'm only going to mention one because they're both pretty similar circumstances. There's the host of a so-called Christian news program, and I won't give the name because I don't want to give him any publicity, but he urged his listeners to repent for supporting Israel. He urged his audience to confess their sin of standing with the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. His assertion is that the nation of Israel is a political nation. It's not the true Israel. Who's ever heard that one before? He then went on to urge the believers to embrace the heresy of replacement theology by making this declaration. And I quote, Jesus, you are my Zion. Jesus, you are my promised land. Jesus, you are my temple. Jesus, you are my eternal capital, Lord. Very sad. The history of how the Jewish people have been persecuted in the name of the church, as well as ongoing anti-Semitic and anti-Jewish behavior such as this, continues to be one of the stumbling blocks that prevents many of the Jewish people from accepting Yeshua. And it's unfortunately becoming more and more common for believers to talk about how much they love Yeshua, but then they turn right around and denigrate the Jewish people and the nation of Israel, and even deny that Yeshua himself was Jewish. The history of the persecution against the Jewish people, a lot of which, as I said, have been done in the name of Christianity, has caused many of them to reject him and even to be downright hostile of any suggestion of him. There was a, um, some of you may have heard about a concert, I'll mention this quickly, that was held recently in Jerusalem at King of Kings Assembly. It was for the purpose of having some of the artists around there present some new messianic music to the congregations in case they might want to use it in their own synagogues. It was not evangelistic in any means, but there was a group of protesters, about 40 or 50, that showed up. They harassed the Jewish believers. They yelled. They screamed at them, told them to get out of Israel. They tried to drown out the sound of worship inside the synagogue. We had two SWAT teams wound up on the site. Uh, regular level police officers took them several hours to get it under control. It was total chaos. What I want to point out is this is not normal. Okay? In Israel, as in other parts of the world, you have believing Jews and non-believing Jews that live side by side in peace. 
What I've described, described here is extreme, and it's extremely rare, but it clearly demonstrates that the battle being waged here over the souls of the unsaved Jewish people is a spiritual one, and we need to recognize that and not be angry at the people. We need to do what Ron Cantor, who's a Messianic leader in Israel, has suggested. We need to pray for these people. We need to pray that they see the light and the truth of God's salvation, not become angry at them. Instead of being a threat to them, the Messiah, Yeshua, can be a blessing. But we have to put him in his right place first. They have to see him for who he truly is before they are able to accept him. So that raises the question of how do we go about doing that. In 2004, Drs. John and Patrice Fisher published a book titled The Distortion, 2,000 Years of Misrepresenting the Relationship Between Jesus the Messiah and the Jewish People. And in that book, they restated 10 significant points that were issued in, catch this year, 1947 at an international emergency conference of Christians and Jews in Switzerland. And that it, this conference had at its goal to rectify anti-Jewish elements in Christian teaching. Sadly, many of these have still not been implemented throughout the world. So I want to share those with you because they're an excellent starting point. First one is remember that one God speaks to us throughout the Old and the New Testaments. We hear all the time in the hyper-grace teaching how there's the old, mean, vindictive God of the Old Testament and there's this new, loving, merciful God of the New Testament. That's a very Greek idea. We talked about that a few months ago. We talked about the Greek philosophers and their influence on our faith. One God. Both parts of the Bible. One God. Okay, he is the same throughout. He's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And we need to recognize that. The second, we need to remember that Yeshua was born of a Jewish mother, of the seed of David, and the people of Israel, and that his everlasting love and forgiveness embraces his own people and the whole world. He was Jewish. He is Jewish, and he will return as a Jew. He gave his life for his fellow Jews, as well as for all of us who are Gentiles. He is the savior of the entire world. Third, remember that the first disciples, the apostles, and the first martyrs were Jews. Yeshua came to reach his people, the Jewish people, and his movement began as a Jewish movement. It was only after his death, resurrection, and ascension that the Gentiles began to come into the faith in large numbers. It was the Jewish disciples who obeyed the command of Yeshua to go out into the nations and proclaim the good news. In other words, we owe a debt of gratitude to the Jewish people for giving birth to our Savior and also for sharing the good news with us. Without them, we would still be lost in our sins. And we forget that many times, unfortunately. Remember that the fundamental commandment of Christianity to love God and one's neighbor proclaimed already in the Tanakh and confirmed by Yeshua is binding upon both Christians and Jews in all human relationships without any exception. Each Shabbat, we recite the Ve'ahavta and the Ve'ahavta Lariacha, which remind us to love the Lord with all our heart, soul, and might and to love our neighbor as ourselves. 
Yeshua reminds us in Luke chapter 10 of who our neighbor is in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it isn't just the person who lives next door or those you like and agree with. Avoid distorting or misrepresenting biblical or post-biblical Judaism with the object of extolling Christianity. In other words, don't put Christianity on a pedestal and denigrate Judaism. I gave you an example a few moments ago of someone who was doing just that, and unfortunately it happens all the time. Paul's teachings have been twisted and distorted to do just that. So please be honest in your interpretations. Avoid using the word Jews in the exclusive sense of the enemies of Yeshua and the words the enemies of Yeshua to designate the whole Jewish people. Too often we forget that not all Jews rejected Yeshua. Many actually became his followers, including some leaders of the Pharisees. Yeshua was rejected on a national level for reasons that were largely political, but he was not rejected by the entire Jewish community. Thus, the Jewish people should never be classified as the enemies of Yeshua. His first disciples, the apostles, and the first martyrs were all Jewish, and large crowds of Jewish people followed him when he went out to teach. So a very sizable number of the Jewish people were his supporters and followers, and we need to remember that. Avoid presenting the passion in such a way as to bring the odium of the killing of Yeshua upon all Jews or upon Jews alone. It was only a section of the Jews in Jerusalem who demanded the death of Yeshua. And the Christian message has always been that it was the sins of mankind which were exemplified by those Jews and the sins in which all men share that brought Messiah to the cross. Mouthful. We could do an entire lesson on this point alone. I would encourage you to read the book, The Distortion, to get a better understanding of how the passion has been used to alienate and blame the Jewish people for Yeshua's crucifixion. I honestly believe that most people who present these presentations have good intentions. They're not trying to cause harm to the Jewish people. They just lack a full understanding of why Yeshua died. And unfortunately, some things creep in that are offensive to the Jewish people, and they are, they are inaccurate. While it is true that the Sadducean leaders of the Sanhedrin were very corrupt in Yeshua's time and played a pivotal role in his crucifixion, so did the Romans, and the Romans were Gentile. The political motives and illegal acts that led to Yeshua's death are very complicated, and they're often overlooked in these productions. So you have an hour and a half, two hours, you have to really condense. So it's completely eliminated in the majority of them. It was a small but powerful group of Jews, not the Jewish people as a whole, who played a role in his death. So the bottom line is this. Yeshua came for the express purpose of giving his life so that through his sacrifice we could have life. Without that sacrifice, which was foreordained before the foundation of the world, we need to remember that, we would all still be dead in our sins. Number eight is to avoid referring to the scriptural curses or the cry of a raging mob, his blood be upon us and our children. 
without remembering that this cry should not count against the infinitely more weighty words of our Lord. Forgive them, for they know not what they do. How many times have you heard someone use this statement as a way of pointing fingers at the Jewish people for the death of Yeshua? Remember, point seven that we just talked about. Yeshua willingly gave his life. They didn't take it. He gave it. And also remember that as he was dying, he cried out to his father, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If Yeshua in his agony could pray for their forgiveness and not blame them, then so should we. Avoid promoting the superstitious notion that the Jewish people are reprobate, accursed, reserved for a destiny of suffering. How many times have we heard that? Thankfully, not, it's not the common, but it is said. The Bible, both the Tanakh and the Brit Hadashah, gives us an entirely different picture. The Jewish people are blessed. From them came the 12 tribes. Our Messiah came from the Jewish people. It is a result of the witness of the Jewish people that we Gentiles have come to faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Messiah Yeshua. In the future, Yeshua will return to Jerusalem to rule and reign during the Millennial Kingdom with his apostles, who are Jewish, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Our Messiah was born of the Jewish people. They have preserved the word of God through the ages so that we can know God and receive the gift of salvation revealed in his word, which gives us eternal life. They were the first to preach the gospel and the first to die for our faith. And their concept, tikkun olam, repairing the world, benefits us all because it encourages them to do kindnesses for others, even their enemies. If you have a computer with a Pentium chip, you can thank the Jewish people. If you have a smartphone, again, you can thank the Jewish people. Technology, medical advancements, and on and on the list goes. We truly owe them a debt of gratitude, one that we can never repay. And then the tenth one, avoid speaking of the Jews as if the first members of the church had not been Jews. I think we've covered that one pretty extensively already. They were all Jews. Only after his death, resurrection, and ascension, beginning with Cornelius, do we really start seeing the Gentiles come into the faith. Left Judaism to start a new religion. They didn't. They continued to live their lives as Jewish men, keeping the commandments, feasts, and traditions. And it was only when they were no longer allowed to do so that they stopped, although many continued to do so in private. And as I mentioned earlier, there are a number of reasons why the Jewish people reject the Messiahship of Yeshua, but simply put, it boils down to this. And we see this in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. They do not come to trust because the God of the Olam Hazeh, this world, has blinded their minds in order to prevent them from seeing the light shining from the good news about the glory of the Messiah, who is the image of God. But today we live in exciting times because we are seeing more and more Jewish people come to faith than ever before in history, in spite of all the anti-Semitism we see around us. And that's why this lesson is so important, because as we begin to put Yeshua back in his rightful place and portray him for who he truly was and truly is, it creates an environment where they can't accept him. He fulfilled 365 specific Messianic prophecies. 
the odds against one person fulfilling that many prophecies would be beyond all mathematical probability. It could never happen, no matter how much time was allotted, unless that person truly is the Messiah. And I want to prove that statement. The odds of one person, person fulfilling just eight of the commandments is one in a quadrillion. Now, one mathematician's estimate of the impossible odds of fulfilling the prophecies is this. One chance in a trillion, 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 trillion. And in case you weren't counting, I said trillion a total of 13 times. Point made, I hope. Our recognition of Yeshua as a Jewish man who obeyed God's commandments and adhered to ancient Judaism is important because the modern-day Gentile Yeshua that many have created must be rejected by the Jews because he does not meet the requirements of a Jewish Messiah. As we portray him for who he is, they are allowed to accept him when they really see who he is. And that is important because the acceptance of Yeshua as Messiah will bring life, as we saw in Romans chapter 11. And this is the exciting part. It's beginning to happen. A survey conducted by the Barna Group in 2017 found that 21% of Jewish millennials believe Yeshua was, quote, God in human form who lived among people in the first century, end quote. And I found that very encouraging because 80% of these responders identified themselves as being religious Jews. A few days ago, I read that at the present time, it is estimated that there are 870,000 Jewish believers in Yeshua worldwide. Yeah. Some scholars believe that number is actually higher. Because there are a lot of Jewish people who believe Yeshua is Messiah, but that are afraid to tell surveyors and announce it publicly because they're afraid of being shunned by their family and society. So, yeah, I, I believe that number is considerably higher than that. The website NazareneJudaism.com corroborates this belief, and it adds this. Just find this exciting. Let me share a secret with you. Many of the Jewish rabbis are well aware that Yeshua of Nazareth is the true Messiah of Judaism. I have spoken with many of them. These rabbis know the truth, but they fear that endorsing Yeshua as Messiah at this point would only serve to wrongly endorse, catch this, the paganism and antinomianism of Christendom. Antinomianism is the belief, what we've been teaching about, that Torah has been done away with and that obedience to Torah is legalism. So you've even got some Jewish rabbis that have acknowledged privately to people that, yes, Yeshua is the Messiah, but I can't announce that publicly because they feel like they're endorsing a wrong view of him when they do that. So putting Yeshua back in his proper context of a Jewish man who kept Torah and taught others to do the same will indeed make it possible for the Jewish people to acknowledge him as the Messiah. If you want some real-life testimonies, I would encourage you to go out to oneforisrael.org. Numerous testimonies videos of Jewish people who accepted Yeshua. There's some you will recognize, Jeff and Barry Seifer out there with their testimonies. They were here at our congregation recently. Ron Cantor, he's been here a couple of times. He has a testimony out there. Dr. Michael Brown, Messianic recording artist Marty Getz, and there's many, many others. So I would encourage you to spend some time looking at those videos.
They're short little videos, so they don't take a lot to look at. You look at one or two now, one or two later. But God's plan is circular. As we've seen, as the Gentiles reach out to the Jewish people and help them recognize Yeshua as the Messiah by putting him in the proper context, the Jewish people who come to faith can then in turn share the fullness of God's word with the Gentiles. And it keeps going round and round and round until it reaches the whole world. It's a beautiful picture, and it's one that we should all be praying will be fulfilled. Yeshua said that he would not come again until the people of Israel cry out, Baruch Hashem Adonai, which means blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And as Paul stated, if the rejection of the Messiah is bringing riches to the world, how much more their acceptance of him? That acceptance will set the stage for his return and establishment of the millennial kingdom, which is what all of us are longing for, both Jew and Gentile. So pray for the Jewish people. Be honest in your representations of Yeshua and others and come quickly, Lord Yeshua. Let's close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you now and we want to confess to you, first of all, for any times that we have misrepresented who Yeshua is and what he taught. Help us to be honest in our portrayals of him and help us that we would be able to reach out to the Jewish people in love and help them to see the truth of your word and that Yeshua truly is the promised Messiah. Father, we pray for their salvation. We pray for the salvation of the Gentiles that do not yet know you. And we pray, come quickly, Lord Yeshua. Come quickly. We long for your return. In Yeshua's name we pray. Amen.